I want to uh, ask you to open your Bible, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 is where we are going to begin our study uh, today. I'm preaching a, beginning a new series of messages today called The Cross from Christ's Perspective. The Cross from Christ's Perspective. And in this, we will take hopefully a compelling behind-the-scenes look at the profound spiritual and theological realities of Calvary. Realities that transcend the physical. Uh, This is not just going to be about the physical pain uh, that he experienced. Into the uh, spiritual realities where, as we will see, he endured the wrath of Satan only to be surpassed by the wrath of God. My desire is is that as we come to our time uh, in God's Word weekly, that we will come um, humble as we look at the things that happened to Christ, but we would also be challenged in our walk. We would grow in our love for Him as well. My desire is at the end of this series that all of us will be blown away being reminded again, or perhaps learning for the first time, the, the extent of the price for which Christ paid to save us and to bring us into the family of God. Um, it, this is not just for knowledge. Uh, it, it, my, my prayer is, is that as we see this, that it will embolden us in... Uh, our understanding of who Christ is, that it will embolden us in our worship. In our worship. Because when we understand and catch a glimpse in beloved, all we're going to do is catch a glimpse of that which Christ endured on the cross. When we just catch a glimpse of that, and and if we could just somehow grasp that truth, may God grant us a heart of worship in response to that which we are learning and being reminded of. So I pray that it emboldens our worship. I pray that it emboldens our words, our witness. These things, I hope that you will take notes and write down, or I hope that you'll go back and pour over them. And I hope that you will share these truths with those that you find yourself in conversation with because these are not the normal topics that people discuss and talk about when it comes to Christianity, but it needs to be. And I pray that you having a clearer glimpse of Christ from His perspective on the cross, that it will embolden our words and our witness. And finally, that it will embolden our works for Him uh, as well. That we will yet again, as we so often have to do, place Him as the priority of our lives and sacrifice other things, right? Sacrifice other things for the cause of Christ instead of the other way around. May, may He find His proper place as the preeminence of our life and of the, as the priority of our lives. And may we align our lives by what we learn about Christ and who He is. So, so those are the three goals that I have for this sermon series as we dig in. 
we begin with Matthew chapter 16. And Matthew chapter 16, we have been in this chapter many, many times. Uh, it is a wonderful passage of Scripture that you come to. And when you come here, um, it, there are so many different directions that you can go in. Um, and all of them, we need to go in all of the directions. But in Matthew chapter 16, you remember Jesus has already been rejected by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've rejected Him as, as Christ, um, as the Messiah. And we come down <clears throat> to the great confession that Peter makes where Jesus comes to His disciples and He says in Matthew chapter 16 verse 13, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Literally, the, 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 the. It's all there. There's no question who Peter says that he is. You are the Christ, the one and only the Son of the God. Which God? The God. The Living One. So literally, that's what He says. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock... I will build my, and everyone there expected him to say kingdom. I don't have time to go back and, and show you all the places in Matthew's gospel, but up until now, this is the first mention of the word church in the Bible. Up until now, it has been kingdom, 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 kingdom. Even Matthew begins by showing that, that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful king. He goes on <coughs> and when Jesus is, is, is baptized and in, in His baptism, immediately following His baptism, He's driven into the wilderness. And after He fights his, overcomes His temptation in the wilderness, John the Baptist is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For the kingdom is at hand. And then Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins preaching, repent for the kingdom is at hand. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, we have a king speaking to his kingdom constituents, his kingdom citizens about life in the kingdom. He establishes his authority in, in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and 10. And all of these things is up until Matthew chapter 12 that he says, No longer is the kingdom coming immediately. The harvest will be at the end of the age. So from Matthew chapter 12 on, there's no more mention of the kingdom being uh, here imminently. It is, it's delayed until Christ returns again. And we've said before that the reason that that's there is so that in Matthew chapter 16, He can establish His church because the kingdom is not just to be made up of Jews, it's made up of Gentiles as well. And the Jews and Gentiles come together in the church as part of the kingdom of God. And so here he says this, here he says, <clears throat> I will say to you um, that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And this would be a massive bombshell, a truth here that Jesus introduces for the first time. 
A second truth that we see here is, is down in verse 21. And here he says, from that time... So up until now, they were expecting the kingdom to come in. Jesus just says, I will build my church. They're somewhat confused. The called out ones, the ecclesia. Now we have the second bombshell here in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief, chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Before now, the expectation is that when Jesus was ready, He would go into Jerusalem, He would assail the throne, He would become king, He would right the wrongs, He would put the Jews in their proper place, because they, after all, they are the sons of Abraham, as God covenanted with Abraham to do. And that was what the expectation was. And now Jesus is saying that He, the Son of Man, is going to suffer and die. And He is going to be killed, killed, and be raised up. On the third day. Well, Peter didn't like that at all. Peter did not think that was a good idea. So Peter took him aside, and can you imagine Peter doing this? Peter took him aside, and, and he took him aside. Now look at this. He didn't just have a conversation with him. They just didn't have a little chat about things. The Bible says clearly that, and, and don't miss this, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall, and he uses the strongest negation in the Greek language possible. He says, it's, it's poor English, by the way, to stack up so many negatives. Okay, if you put right one negative as a negative, you can make that negative stronger. But if you put two negatives, then it two negatives make a positive, but not so in Greek. So he stacks up the negative. It's the strongest negation possible when he says this shall. And the only way to translate it into English is no, not never happen to you. This shall not, no, not never happen to you. And Jesus turned and He said, now look at this, He turned and He said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, let's be clear, Jesus um, did not forget Peter's name. He didn't say Simon. He wasn't just looking for an S word. Jesus is talking about his death and he's talking about the things that have come. This would be no, no place for name calling or identifying. Probably more than anyone else in that room right there, Jesus would see the presence of Satan at work in that scenario, in that situation, trying to prevent him from going to the cross. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind on God's interest. Not on God's interest, but man's. Satan is at work in Matthew chapter 16 to keep Jesus from going to the cross. And you may say, well, 
Why would he do that? I would remind you that Satan was once in heaven and was cast out of heaven. If there's anyone who knew the true identity of Jesus, it is Satan. Satan didn't have to come to know who Jesus was. Now, he did not know the full plan of God. He had no clue because God didn't reveal it in, in how it was going to happen. He saw Jesus in his pre-incarnate state. Jesus apparently disappears from heaven, is found as a single cell in a woman's womb through which he is born. But even quickly he stood out among all the other people in the world because he was perfect and sinless and obeyed God in every way, shape, form, and capacity. He obeyed the law to its infinite degree. It was also at his baptism. If Satan hadn't figured out by now who he was, that for the first time since God said in Genesis chapter 1, man is very good. He hasn't been able to say that about anyone else since he created man in Genesis chapter 1. The voice from heaven shouts, the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And if that's not enough, the Holy Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove, like a dove. Not a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a bird. He comes down in the form of a dove and lands on him and puts all the point and all the pressure and God himself says, This is my beloved son. If that's not enough, he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted. And there being tempted for 40 days... That wasn't his only temptation. The Bible says that he was tempted in every way known to man, yet he was without sin. Satan clearly understood who he was. Satan clearly could identify him and see that he was different from every other human being. He saw him raise the dead. He saw him heal the sick. He saw them heal the blind. He saw him walk on water. He saw him forgive sins. Satan knew exactly who he was and therefore Satan knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 which is the pronouncement from God that says Satan your demise your head crushing is going to come through the seed of a woman. Satan knew that Jesus was the head crusher and he knew what was about to take place. And here in this particular passage of Scripture, we're going to see it differently next week. In this particular passage of Scripture, Satan does everything he can in the strongest Greek negation possible to rebuke Jesus and to work to keep him from coming to the cross. Jesus is not having it. Matthew chapter 16, the rest of the chapter there, is about discipleship. And this is the first time that Jesus mentions discipleship. And he mentions deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. This is the first time that discipleship is also mentioned in this chapter. And now we come to Matthew chapter 17. 
and Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and He takes them up onto the mountaintop. And there, He is transfigured in front of them. You remember the encounter there? You can see it in Matthew chapter 17. Six days later, He took with Him Peter, James, and John, and He led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And He was transfigured before Him, and His face shone like the sun, and His garments became as white as light. And Moses and Elijah was there. What did they see? They saw the glory of God on the face of Christ. They saw the glory of God on the face of Christ. He pulled back the veil of His flesh to let them see what it would be like when Jesus comes in His glory. Go with me, if you would, over to Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, and and we'll pick up in... uh, I think we can go to to Mark chapter 9. We'll pick up in in verse 8. Mark's Gospel... has the transfiguration story uh, there uh, as well. And we'll pick up at the end of, of chapter 8 because uh, there's something there that we need to see as we, as we go. And remember, we're just kind of laying the table before us for where we're going to feast for the next uh, nine Sundays or eight Sundays counting today. In Matthew, I mean, excuse me, Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this, For whoever is ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him. Now look at this. When He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. So this is one of the first times that Jesus mentions the glory of God. And basically what He says here, and He says it in other places as well, we'll clarify it in coming weeks, um, that that all, everywhere in the Old Testament that you saw the glory of God, that is forever connected to Christ. So he's talking about His glory, and now we have Mark's version of the transfiguration. And it's the same as Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white with no launderer on earth uh, can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them also with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, it is good. Let's just stay here. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. You know, sometimes you just need to be quiet and not say anything, but he, he, just, he had to say something. It is good for us to be here. Let us, what, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now look at this, verse 6 says, For he did not know what to answer. He didn't have a clue what to say in response to what he was seeing. For they became 
terrified. And again, for the second time, the voice out of heaven overshadowed them. A voice, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. That moment changed their lives forever. John says this in John chapter 1. He can't get past the first couple of verses without saying, And we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten Son. Peter would not mention the miracles, the walking on the water, even the one that he was participating in. And, and Peter was there. Peter was part of the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. They got to be there for the raising of Jairus' daughter. They got to be there for the, the, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. They got to be there for so many things. They got to be there as part of the, as we will see in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came with the other disciples, part of the, the inner three. And Peter would talk more about the glory of God than he would anything else. That so greatly impacted his life. I want you to grasp the measure here that for just a moment that simply says this, that their lives probably visibly, if you remember Moses on the mountain with God when God's glory came down and his their face shone, probably visibly, though the text doesn't say that, but certainly in every other way, what they just saw and what they experienced in light of what they just heard would have forever changed their life and they could not wait to get down the mountain and talk about it. What they had seen. Because that's what they did with everything else that they did. Except if you would, notice verse 9 because that would be a real bummer. In verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. You can't talk about it. You can't talk about it. You've got to keep it quiet. Now, they could talk about it among each other, and I promise you that they did when the other disciples were not around. They could talk about it with Jesus, and I promise you, they asked questions. I cannot wait to get to heaven and see perhaps the questions and the conversations they had with Jesus or about each other about this event. But they could not say anything to anyone else. And they didn't. And they didn't. Let me say, okay, well... How did you know that they didn't? Well, if you're told not to tell anyone anything, if you were going to tell, who would you tell? Probably your family and maybe your trusted associates. Best friends. No indication whatsoever that they shared any of that information with the disciples until after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. No indication, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, no reference in the Bible. There's no mention, there's no conversation that even alluded that they told the other disciples. And even more so, there's clear evidence that James and John didn't even tell their own mother. 
Let me, let me show it to you. Let me show it to you. Um, turn with me, if you will. Turn with me. Oh, let's see. Where do we want to go? Um, t- turn with me. Go, go with me to, to Mark, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick up in verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside. And he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So everywhere that Jesus talks about his death, he always talks about his resurrection. So those who witness his death, other than being blinded, by their own eyes and, and God ordaining it that way, they should have recalled that Jesus said He was going to die but rise again. But when it happens and you're walking through it and you don't know what to expect, it is as if they'd never heard the news that He was going to rise again until they were reminded. Though Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, this is what's going to happen here in Mark chapter 10. This is what's going to happen But it's interesting when we get to verse 35. In verse 35, I I don't want you to think that this happened immediately. This would be uh, about a year later We uh, there. So they had sat on this thing and and kept quiet. The the two passages that we're going to look at now did not happen immediately after the transfiguration. Some time had passed, probably a year and so they just had their conversations privately among themselves and with Jesus. And James and John, verse 35 says, the two sons of Zebedee, they came up to Jesus saying, now Jesus just said, the Son of Man is going to suffer and die and be raised. And now they want to come aside and notice they left Peter out. Peter's not here in this. It's just the two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, who was a fisherman. They were fishermen as well. These are older. These are not kids. These are probably not teenagers. Probably who, but old enough to run their own business. And they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, on Wednesday, I I know this kind of looks a little skewed now, and I don't have time to unpack here, but Wednesday we're going to come back to this because I want us to see right now, even in this, we're probably going to be like, well, that was pretty insensitive of them. Jesus talking about His death and resurrection, and they just want to come up and say, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I don't have time to go here, but... But if, you, if you're honest with yourself and you examine your prayer life, you will see in reality you want the same thing. At least there, what they wanted was spiritual. When oftentimes, I don't know about you, but what I want 
is not always spiritual. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. That's Wednesday. Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now, now notice what he says. <clears throat> they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now, note this in your Bible. In your glory. They saw the glory of God on the face of Christ. They saw Him in His glory. And what do they want? When you come into your glory, we'll hash out who's going to be the first seat, the second seat. We'll hash it out. But we want to be the ones who sit on your left hand and on your right hand. When you come, notice this, in your glory. Now, now why could they say that? Because they experienced it and they could talk about it and they understood what they were talking and asking for and they used in your glory. Now, notice what Jesus said to them. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. And look at the question. Are you able to drink the cup that... Present tense. Notice the present tense. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, now, present tense means that it's happening now. This cup that Jesus is drinking is a cup that He is drinking now, that He has been drinking and will continue to drink. This is present tense. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So Jesus is drinking a cup now. Now, let's, let's be clear and we'll, we'll define this cup more next week. We're going to run out of time today. But this cup is not the cup of salvation. Jesus is already saved. This cup is, 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 is the cup that unbelievers do not qualify for. <clears throat> there is a sense where all of us from the time that we were saved are walking and living in this life that all of us have this cup that we are drinking from all the days of our lives. Sometimes the Bible calls it a cup. Sometimes it calls it a course or a race. What did Paul say? I have finished my race. Same thing. He called it the race. He has run the race that God has given him to run. He has drank the cup that God had given him to drink. In this world, you will have tribulation, suffering, discipleship, development. All of those things are part of the cup. Your cup is unique and different from any other cup. What God calls you to, what God calls you, He never said your life would be easy when you get saved. He said that you have a cup to drink. And in this cup, in this world are tribulations. In this world are sufferings. In this world are misunderstandings. In this world are all the things. And whatever it is, His cup is for you to drink you and I have our own cup to drink. And Jesus has this cup. And in this case, He says this. He says, Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Kind of foolishly, without fully understanding, but certainly just 
wanting what they wanted, which was to be with him on his right and left in the kingdom. They said, we are able. Verse 39. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, the cup that I'm currently drinking, the cup present tense, drink. Ongoing, normal routine, right? Um, if somebody says, I play golf, doesn't mean you're playing right now, but it means that playing golf is part of your life. It's part of the normal routine of your life. If you say, I brush my teeth before going to bed, present tense. You're not brushing your teeth now, right? I brush my teeth, but what you're saying is, is that's part of your regular. The cup that you drink, same thing, same thing. <clears throat> and Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. You, you have a cup, and, and I have a cup, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Go, go with me now. We need to look... Um, go back to Matthew chapter 20. We're going to see a related incident. However, it's not the same. Uh, this is not the same conversation with Jesus. It is a different conversation. Matthew chapter 20. And this, by the way, would not be these tough fishermen's best day. Um, might have been even somewhat embarrassing because Mama gets involved. And Mama goes to Jesus on their behalf. So, 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 and I want you to see, Jesus is talking to James and John, and He says, they say, when you come into your glory, James and John knew glory. They saw it, they knew it's coming, suffering first, glory to follow. When you come into your glory, we want to be there. Matthew chapter 20 Verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. Now I would remind you, grown men own a business, fishing business. And mama comes up with them. So this is not mama dragging her boys. Bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, So he recognizes his authority, Command, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. Notice, mama didn't know glory. Mama only knew kingdom. Why didn't mom know anything about glory? Because Jesus said what? On the way down the mountain, He said, tell no one. Not even your mama. I might have added that part. But He said, He said, don't tell anyone. No indication. They didn't even tell. Mama didn't know glory. Mama said, when you come into your kingdom... Mom at this point is still sort of ambivalent about all the things that are going on. She knows who Jesus is. She knows what Jesus is going to do. She's saved. There's no indication that she's not saved. No indication that she's not a believer. But she knows nothing about glory because she wasn't there with 
Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration. She didn't experience her glory. They didn't talk about glory. Mama knew nothing about glory, but Mama knew kingdom. When you come into your kingdom, grant that my boys may sit, one on your left and one on your right. And Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Now look at the question, and immediately you might think, this is the same question that he asked before, but there's a change. Look at it carefully. Are you able to drink the cup that what? Future tense. I am about to drink. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? There's an aspect that Jesus drinks a cup every day of his life. And at the same time, there is a cup that Jesus was about to drink upon which no one would be able to drink. Only Jesus, the Son of God, who lived perfectly and righteously, obeying God in every way, was qualified to drink the cup that Jesus was about to drink. And even though she says, we we are able... He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but sit on my right and left. This is not mine to give. There is a cup that you will drink, but this is my cup, and this is the cup that only I can drink. So what am I saying? There's a cup that all of us drink on a regular basis. It's part of being a believer. It's part of living contrary to the world. How many of you know this world is not your home? This world is not going to treat you kindly. It's not going to treat you fair. The world is not going to fit in your flow and scheme of life. Everything about this world is contrary to who you are and you living as a Christian in this world in whatever God right allows to happen and occur and whatever you deal with and whatever family situations and whatever health situations and whatever financial situations and whatever devastation and whatever celebration and whatever the good and the bad and all that's there is part of the cup that you and I have to drink. But there's another aspect of the cup of Christ that is unique to Him and only He can drink it. Can we go to two more verses? John 13. I know you're freezing. John 13, 31. I'll touch on this quickly. John 13, 31, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus had said, 
so so just to kind of catch you up with, with where it is, um, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper in John, the fourth part of John chapter 13. He goes out, he predicts his betrayal in, in chapter 21 and following. And in that section, after receiving the morsel, Judas went out. So the one who was going to betray him has now left. So here's Jesus, and he's in the room, and everybody in the room loves him. Judas was never was never a believer in God. He was always a counterfeit. He didn't get his salvation and lose it. He pretended the part. He played the part. He did all of those things. Judas the betrayer is gone. Everybody in that room knows Jesus and loves Jesus and, and all of these things. And in this moment, in that room, Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Can you imagine Peter, James, and John? (gasps) Now is the Son of Man glorified. We know what that's about. Now is the Son of Man. Now listen, five times... The Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him when? Forty times in Mark's Gospel is the word immediately. John incorporates it here. Mark's Gospel, immediately, 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 40 times. It's, it's moving through. Mark's not writing to Jews. Mark doesn't have Old Testament truths spurred throughout. John's writing to show that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no weakness mentioned in, in Jesus, and, and there's no Abba Father we're going to see here in just a minute praying for Jesus here. He is God. John presents Him as God, and now Jesus saying, Glory, 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 glory. And in that context, I promise you, Peter, James, and John, <gasps> here it is. This is what we've been waiting for. You're not going to believe this. Right? You're not going to believe this. You're not going to... I mean, can you imagine what it was like? They probably... Oh, they had to bite their tongue to not talk about it. And sit on it. And now here's Jesus going, Glory, 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 glory. And like, what's this? What's, we've seen it. We, we know what this is like. What, watch this, watch this. Verse 33, Jesus says, Little children, I am with you for a little while longer. You will seek me. Now they said to the Jews, now, now, they, they were Jews. But here he's talking about the enemy unbelieving Jews. As I said to the enemy unbelieving Jews, now I also say to you where I am going, you cannot. He goes on to say, now, now Peter, he, he just his mind is turned off right there. Peter, glory, 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 glory. And now, here he is, we're going to usher in, hey, the glory's coming, right? James and John, I promise they looked at each other, they did, right? All of these things, and Jesus says, and where I'm going, you... You can't go. And he goes on to say, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Peter heard none of that. Great great place to come pick up and talk about body life, talk about the church, talk about the things, what it's like to be in the church. Great place to, to, to go in that direction. But we're not going to do that. We're going to stay on task.
Peter, he, he missed all of that new commandment. What Peter, the last thing Peter heard was, where I'm going, you cannot go. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Now, what about all those things that Jesus just said? Totally checked out. I mean, he probably sat back looking defeated. Where, where are you going? And Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you'll follow later. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter believes at that moment that he has what it takes to drink the cup that only Christ can drink. But he can't. Why? Because he's not spotless and he's not sinless. The cup that Christ is about to drink is a cup that only he can drink and in him drinking this cup He's the only one qualified. And in drinking this cup, He purchases our salvation. And if He sins anywhere along the way, if He backtracks, if He, if he comes down, if he, right, if he doesn't drink every drop of the cup, there is no hope for our salvation. So even though Peter might have wanted to drink the cup, he was not qualified to drink the cup. You can go look in John's Gospel. I'll let you do that on your own. Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people say, oh, Jesus is God. The cup that He had was easy for Him. He was God. Beloved, I promise you it is not. It's in the Gospels that He says, Abba, Father, right? Um, Abba, Father, just, just write this down. Write this first down. Mark fourteen thirty six. He's praying, and notice what he prayed. Mark fourteen thirty six. As he was saying, "Abba, Father, Abba." That's Daddy. That's that's Papa, right? That's what your kids used to say to you before they got old and got over it, right? Now they don't care when you come in and go, but but when they're little. Right? They can, ah, Papa, Daddy. Right? This is, this is a tender, personal moment between the Father and the Son. And he calls him Abba, Father. Abba is a personal word. Pater is the word for Father. Pater. pater. You've heard of, you know, taking a paternity test to find out who the Father is. It comes from the Greek word pater. Right? Our pater, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Right? Your pater knows the needs that you have and will meet them. That Jesus uses pater, Father, all the time. But here, in this tender moment before God, right, praying, sweats of blood, He says, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what 
you will. John's gospel adds something to the account that we'll close with. Look in John 18. John 18 is not going to show any um, weakness or wavering in Jesus at all. John's going to focus on Jesus being God. It's not about the deity. It, uh, only, though it is. It's not, he's not denying it. It's just he's showing the, the, the humanity and the deity. John is focused on the deity alone. So you won't see any praying sweat drops of blood. Abba Father in John's uh, recording of this event. So, chapter 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine by the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he had entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am the name of God. I am. I am He. He's been added. And Judas also was betraying Him, was standing with them. Look in verse 6. So when He said to them, I am He, they drew back and fell to the ground. They thought, now these would be big men sent out to arrest Him. And they says, simply says, I am. And they're out. They're staring at the stars. Can, can you imagine having to get up, dust yourself off, and come back and who are you looking for? I mean, Jesus could have played that game all day. He also could have pulled the veil back of his flesh and let his glory come out. But beloved, if he had done either of those things, he would not have gone to the cross. He would have not have drunk the cup the Father had given him to drink. And therefore, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. Notice what it says. They asked him again, and Jesus said, I told you I'm he. So if you seek me, let these others go to fulfill the word which he spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Notice the words to Jesus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? There are three aspects of the cup that makes Christ's cup unique and different from any cup that any person has ever drunk. And we will cover those in this series. Not today. We're out of time for today. But we'll come back and we'll look at these things and we'll see where we go in our study of the cross from Christ's perspective. Two points of application I simply would share with you as we live here today. This is not a what to do message. This is a who is. In fact, this entire series is a who is 
series, not a what do I do. At the same time, I don't think that we can encounter these truths of God's Word and not be changed and transformed by it. Today we've spoken about the cup and certainly the cup that Jesus drank. And we will see that He drinks every drop of the cup the Father has given Him to drink. And at the same time, He said to His disciples, You have a cup as well. Well, but I simply would remind you today that you who are Christians, if you're not a Christian, you don't have a cup. You don't have a cup. But you who are Christians, you who are saved, who are born again, you have a cup. And it is necessary in this life to finish your cup, to finish your course, and to remain faithful and true in that which God puts in that cup for you. I don't want you to go and compare cups with other people. Right? And at the same time, I want you to be mindful that everyone has a cup and in that cup are sufferings and in that cup are whatever it is that God allows every person to go through. And part of you understanding that you have a cup and the things that's in that cup for you will help you to encourage and strengthen and edify others who are drinking from their cup as well. So I want you to commit, number one, to drink the cup that God has for you and to drink all of it. To finish the race, as Paul said, to finish your course, to complete it, and to not get discouraged and give up along the way. And then secondly, as we walk through this study, you're going to see that no matter what's in your cup, no matter how difficult your cup is, no matter the, the years of suffering and tribulations and all the things, whatever, whatever it is, whatever's in your cup, whatever's in your cup, I promise you this, it pales in comparison to the cup that Christ drank for you on your behalf. Not only find encouragement and strengthen one another with these words when they are drinking from their cup and it is tasting bitter at this moment, but also be reminded that Christ drank His cup for you and actually qualified you to even have a cup. And His cup, as you'll see, was far, far more than any cup you and I would ever want to have to drink what's in this cup more in the future let's stand in prayer heavenly father i pray lord in the name of jesus that you would help us to do what jesus did with our cup Father, may, may we pray as Jesus prayed so earnestly that sweat drops of blood came from His head asking You to remove the cup because we know that all things are possible for You. And Father, may we know that it's okay to ask You to do that for us as well. But just as You did not do it for Jesus, so too You will not remove it from us. So, Lord, strengthen us. Help us to be resolved. Even as Jesus was resolved to drink the cup which you had given him to drink. 
may we drink our cup likewise. And Father, may we consider the cup that Christ drank. And may we be reminded that He didn't drink His cup on His behalf only, but on behalf of all who would believe. Father, we just thank You so much for Your Word. And God, just pray that You'll richly bless this study and our time together. May it embolden our worship. May it embolden our witness. And may it embolden our works. For your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.